one of the things that have really appealed to leaders to do at all levels uh, is go to the sprint review, go to the demo, see what they've built in the past two weeks. If you're worried about metrics, look at the client's eyes when they see that thing that has been built. And, you know, you get from them, wow, they're really excited about that. You know, I think it's time to be realistic about it as well and start measuring, you know, outcomes instead of output, meaning those outputs or those milestone things that you set in the road that were arbitrarily came up with because chances are you never talk to a developer or a development team about how long it's going to take to get to that milestone. Welcome to the Passion Struck Podcast. My name is John Miles, a former combat veteran and multi-industry CEO turned entrepreneur and human performance expert. Each week we showcase an inspirational person and message that helps you unlock your hidden potential and unleash your creativity and leadership abilities. Thank you for spending time with me today and let's get igniting. Thank you for joining me on the Passion Struck Podcast. Author and venture capitalist Antonio Bello Santos said, our role as business leaders is to understand the strategic implications of digital transformation, lead the way forward, and implement our vision for the future of our businesses and their contribution to the communities we support through our activities. There is no doubt that the impacts of digital transformation are having profound impacts on us both in our careers, in our futures, and how we need to approach both of them. And this is a great lead-in for our guest today, Sid Tobias, who is leading this revolution in British Columbia and teaching others his wisdom. Sid and I discuss how he made a big change in the direction of his career, his transition from the armed forces to government service, what it means to be a gardener leader, and what the future of digital development and digital leadership looks like for the British Columbia government. Sid Tobias is the Director of Digital Standards Office for the Ministry Advanced Education and Training in British Columbia. He has 25 years with Canadian Armed Forces working in Naval Joint and Combined Forces. In his time with the forces, he was a Specialist Joint Interface Control Officer Canadian Joint Tactical Data Link Coordinator, Coxon, or Head Chief of the HMS Ottawa, and Chairman of the NATO Tactical Data Link. He has been formally recognized for his work in leadership by NATO, ASIC, Hungary, Poland, Greece, and Canada. And he's quick to admit that none of his accomplishments would have been possible without exceptional mentorship, leadership, and the support of international teams. I am thrilled to have him on the show today, and I think there is so much to be learned from him in this interview we're about ready to hear. There is so much you can learn from Sid, and I'm absolutely thrilled to talk to him today. Sid Tobias, thank you so much for coming on today's episode of Passion Struck. I am so excited to, to talk to you. And I think the listeners are going to learn so much from you, from both your military service to your government service that you're doing now in British Columbia. Thank you so much for being on the show. Absolute pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. 
Well, Sid, you have had a really interesting career, and thank you for your 25 years of service to your country. I wanted to start the podcast out by giving the listeners kind of a description of, you know, during your time in service, you know, what, what was your role? What was your training? And um, what was the main thing that you did as, as part of your service? Yeah, I, I guess uh, most of my um, service was spent in a kind of a crossroads between an operator and a technician in that destroyer operations room. I think you call them OSs in the uh, in the American uh, Navy. And that, the, the main role was uh, fusing sensor data together to make decision-making um, a little bit easier for commanders. So that's the operation of uh, sonars, radars, intelligence, and kind of building that situa- situational awareness plot for to allow commanders to make uh, real-time decisions kind of in the field. And uh, so most of my time was split up uh, both at sea and, and ashore and instructing uh, various levels of, uh, of naval combat information operators to, uh, to be successful in their jobs. And then uh, a significant amount of coaching and, and mentoring those, uh, those same teams through uh, various levels of both uh, individual training and team training. Okay, interesting. So I, I think we, we both have some similar experiences in working with uh, in the joint world and with people from, from different uh, countries. I know you, you're going to talk about uh, kind of a friendly fire incident, but as a lead-in, I, it wasn't a friendly fire situation, but I was myself on a destroyer, the USS Kidd. Um, this would have been back in around 1994. We were on patrol off the coast of uh, Bosnia, uh, Croatia. And at that time, the Yugoslavian uh, Navy had these OSA patrol ships that had, you know, in today's world, they, they weren't that sophisticated, but they had some Soviet-era uh, Scud missiles on them that uh, could wreak havoc on a destroyer. And I was standing watch. It was uh, in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden we got lit up by... Uh, different uh ships at the same time and you know i declared um you know general quarters and um you know tons of things are going through your mind as you're there and you know luckily the chief of the boat um which i think you've got experience was was there with me and, and you know he and i were talking and then this the commanding officer came in and i was in a similar role because I was deployed on on the ship as uh, the cryptologic officer or, or kind of their intel officer, and so he said to me, "You know, am I? Are we, should we take them out or or not? You know, do they have hostile intent or not?" And you know, I used the best knowledge that I could, but it was it was purely based on you know, the threat posture that I had seen and other things and not what I would have loved to have had was a true, you know, digital fusion of information. But I, I told him, I don't, I think this is just a, you know, they're, they're just trying to show their muscles and they're not going to fire on us. They'd be stupid too, because we'd take them both out and don't do anything. And it turned out to be the right guess. But when you're, when you're sitting there in that situation, you know, you've got the life of the crew on your mind and you've got, you know, in that decision, you know, you're going to kill the people on those two boats as well, because we had more than enough 
firepower to, to do it 10 times over. So, you know, I wanted to, to relate, relate that because, you know, that was really before we entered this world of digital disruption. But you went through a little bit different scenario, but uh, I thought it would be good for the listeners to hear this as a starting point for you as well. Yeah, I guess it was a personal motivation, a, a significant life-changing event. And I think for many of the listeners, they've, uh, they've gone through those significant um, events and, uh, you know, have questions about a way forward. And I think a way forward from learning from other people's experience, not just one person, but, uh, you know, a, a diversity of voices can help guide uh, courses that, that, uh, uh, toward, you know, where you are now. And for me, it was, uh, an incident. And, and unfortunately, the incident occurred between a, uh, an American F 16 and some of our troops on the ground, um, in, uh, Tarnak farms in Afghanistan. And it was, I think, 2002 when I was stationed on a, uh, destroyer in the Persian Gulf, a Canadian destroyer. And, um, so the uh our troops canadian troops on the ground were conducting a uh, a night live fire exercise and the f-16 interpreted it as a threat thought the intent was there that uh the that, that, that there would, would be harm so the pilot made a decision to uh drop a 500 pound iron bomb on the position and then, uh, of course, the consequences for that um, were significant to a coalition. I think it's it's really bad when you have friendly fire uh, incidents within uh, a national or, or nation's joint forces. But it becomes that much more challenging, I think, when you involve coalition or your allies and, and friends in that. It becomes a, a little bit more difficult to uh, maintain those same bonds of, of, of trust. The response immediately from some of the American leadership, I remember uh, a, a, uh, an admiral coming over from the aircraft carrier and uh, American um, admiral and, uh, and talking about how significant this event was and personally apologized for it. So number one, uh, that was a big thing uh, that, the, you know, there was a significant failure and all of a sudden leadership was standing up and saying, we got to do better at this. And, you know, from my perspective, I could see both kind of the position of uh, the F-16 through some relays and knew our position of our Canadian troops in, in other systems, but they couldn't see each other, right? There was no way for them to identify that pilot seeing a little blue dot that would make all the difference right. in the world uh, over our position. And uh, by the same token, um, you know, it was you know, not known the identity of the jet that was overhead from the perspective of our troops. So I took with great healing the words that were said by, you know, the American leadership and the Canadian leadership at the time. But my concern was, who's doing anything about this? This problem will repeat itself unless somebody does something about it. So what small difference can I make to uh, hopefully affect some change. I guess it was ground home for me a little bit further when, uh, after I made it back from that deployment, uh, I was presented with a, uh, an advanced, uh, Southwest Asia medal by the governor general in Canada. 
And uh, at the same time, the families uh, were receiving theirs for those uh, that were lost, a posthumous award. So that, you know, the effect that I saw was the direct effect on, on uh, families of those servicemen that, that had passed because of that incident. So I guess it motivated me to ask a lot of questions, both internally. Do uh, are you the guy? Are you the guy to right. uh, to take this change on? And how hard is it? And in all of my work, I've seen tremendous success by organizing uh, small teams of like-minded people to really, you know, look at some of the root cause of the problem. Not to come up with the perfect solution, but just say, hey, can we experiment in a way that we can see each other? Let's start there. Let's just see each other and, and you know, move on and learn from that experience. So very early on, I, I was, of course, supported uh, by, by my leadership, even though they were kind of taking a bit of flack. Because I think when we, uh, it was just the beginning, as you were aware, of kind of, you know, the joint collaborative warfare, uh, both in the states and then as a coalition. It was hard mm -hmm. stuff. New technology, new procedures. You had um, a differences in understanding uh, each other, for instance. And I think the one thing that uh, I, I kind of focused on more than anything was like small, iterative, short burst development. How do we provide leadership opportunities for others to hopefully, if you do it right, do a better job than you could do? So looking at um, failures as successes, if you're learning from them and being able to share and distribute those uh, failures widely. So if another team can come up and be successful, then that's okay. That's what you want to do. It's not your, your ego isn't into, um, you know, solving the particular problem it's kind of solving it as a as a group and being comfortable in 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 achieving that and i think the one hard thing about medals or accommodations is i don't think there's a single military leader out there that could say i deserve this medal for what i did you know there are teams of people uh, behind supporting those decisions, supporting the actions, supporting the award of that medal. And I think for those that have served before certainly get a good appreciation for that. And all I could do in my small way was to provide the conditions for teams to get together. And they started off as one service, like the Canadian Navy, and they quickly right. branched into involving the Canadian Air Force and Army. And then we started mixing crews up. So we had Air National Guard to, from uh, Washington State in our cells and uh, U.S. Navy that was flying up from Third Fleet to participate in our exercises. Not as another unit, but an integrated part of what we were trying to do. And uh, I developed some phenomenal friendships over the years with uh, with my counterparts, both in uh, NORAD and and with uh, Comsert Fleet, to um, enable these small exercises that we would embed opportunities to learn from. And I think we all became better because of those opportunities. Well, that's great. And and as a as a backdrop, um, I, I think I remember re reading from your background that you are um, educated in agile methodology. Mm -hmm. 
And did that desire to, to go into Agile um, come out of this experience? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, that those small iterative uh, changes we can do, not only in our opportunities for, you know, introducing new technology or making it better, but also the procedures that we work with it or develop it. What are some of the, the ways that we can replicate or, or the, uh, I know to speak in, in your terms, how can we be a leader gardener? How can we create the conditions, the best success opportunities for something to grow uh, when we look at our team being that thing that we're trying to grow? And I think, you know, it, it can only be done through small iterative experiments, really. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I responded to your invitation email as, uh, you know, who knew olive trees would grow in Canada? And I've got... <laughs> I've got two that are growing in my backyard. There's a couple that didn't take, I'll admit it. And so far they're successful and I hope they're enduring. But you know, if next year came along and it was a hard winter then, uh, and, and I lost one, it wouldn't be so bad because I'm learning from the experience. Uh, so I think that setting the conditions around, uh, around teams is difficult because in ways you have to be uh, cognizant of getting the right people. You know, getting the right people in the room with that same motivation. And I will say that one of the strongest attributes has been that servant style of leadership, you know, not only from above and protecting the team, but also within that team and creating conditions. I think the retrospectives that agile teams use are, are phenomenal. And I, you know, see a great deal of parallel in those military after action report for a brief period of time, you take off your rank. And everybody has their say. And if you're the lieutenant or the sergeant and you let somebody now, they're going to somebody down during the exercise or, or live fire operation, they're going to let you know. They're going to let you know For that, sure. you know, you put them in an unsafe space and you've got to, you've got to own that. You know, it's, it's also listening. And I think in the business world and in other worlds, you don't have the same type of urgency and you're not as open to those opportunities where everybody can take the rank off and just be honest. And boy, if you can create an organization or an industry that that's possible in, I think that would have phenomenal power. Because oftentimes I think in leaders, whether you're in the military or in the private sector, you know, you have a hard time um, listening to those weak signals. And being a SIGINT guy, you know that it's sometimes those very weak signals that are the nuggets, right? They're, they are, uh, you know, they're, they're not the loudest. They're very small signals that can really change the course of future decision making. And so how do we as leaders listen to those? How do we allow ourselves both the time and uh, the attenuation to hear those weak signals that are occurring? And by weak signals, often they're good ideas. You know, they're good ideas from the crew or from your team that you've tuned yourself out because you're kind of focusing on that end state as opposed to iteration. So, yeah, I think there's some real power in, in looking at that iterative kind of development. And a lot of leaders look at, you know, the traditional uh, transformation model where I know where I am right now and 
I'll go through some strategic planning and figure out where I want to go. And, you know, your exercise over the next amount of time, whether it's years, is closing the gap between the future state and the current state. You know, right. the basis of what you decide as a digital architecture or digital transformation. And I tend to look at it backwards. I tend to look at, let's define that thing that we want to get to in the end. But instead of mapping out from current state to there, let's map it out backwards, right? What are the things, the conditions without putting an arbitrary milestone timeframe around that we can learn from? What are those things that we know that are going to enable us to be successful? But it's okay if you take a different path. But sometimes if we're looking at uh, those milestones to get to the end state, you lose the whole purpose of what you might have achieved uh, by taking another path along the way. And, and the difference, I, I think, as, as ex-Navy guys, you realize that in order to get to a point, you navigate to it. It's not a right. linear path. You know, you do slow down for a storm <laughs> or a landmass or, uh, or something like that. And you navigate to it. It doesn't mean you're going to make it in any less time because you're going you're to think about that. But your course corrections are almost, you know, they're constant, constant course corrections along the way. And that's okay to have course corrections along the way. It doesn't have to be a linear path. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things. And Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates. It's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit Get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash PassionStruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at PassionStruck.com slash deals. Now, back to PassionStruck. No, you. there's so much to unpack in what you just said. Um, I, I remember... My first exposure to, to true agile methodology was when I was at Lowe's and I had come off my first job where I was helping them recover from, at that point, the largest uh, cybersecurity attack in retailer history. And I had been given the job of taking over all application development and changing our path to do more omni-channel retail. And as I got into the job, I started, uh, you know, in those first 90 days, I tried to interview as many 
people on the business side as I possibly could. And I met uh, with my friend, Scott Butterfield, who was the head of strategy at the time. And I said, you know, Scott, what's your view of how we're doing software development now? And he, he said something that stuck with me ever since that point. He said, John, we're absolutely world-class at delivering solutions that by the time they come into production are completely obsolete. And it was one of those things where it's like getting a, a, a pail of cold water poured on your head because it just, I mean, it, for me, it, it like the light went off. And at that point, we were doing these long monolithic uh, waterfall development projects. And these things were taking years and years to get out the door. And so I, I ended up getting trained in Agile and becoming a Scrum Master and started to prophesize um, to my teams and to the business why, you know, we should go in, in this route. And, you know, as you go into it, the immediate feedback you get is this is just an IT thing, you know, a technology thing. It doesn't matter on the business side and it can't be more farther from the truth. So for me, the hardest thing to do was to actually get someone, you know, one of my business peers to sign up and do it. And I found it in this gentleman, Ron Lutz, who's a good friend of mine to this day, but he was at this point probably in the top two or three most dissatisfied customers of the technology group that there were. And he had this, um, he'd been given the task by the head of merchandising that he had to come in and re-merchandise or find a way to do that across all the stores. And he, at this point, was going to go outside of our organization and hire a third party because he just didn't trust it. And I said, hey, are you willing to go on this uh, journey with me? And you know, I'll do it together with you. And I'll, I'll walk sidestep with you. And we ended up bringing in uh, an Indian outsourcer called Infosys. Um, they kind of trained his team, my team, in the methodology. And from that point forward, you know, that we started uh, Scrum sessions every single day. And he and I would, would, you know, made it a point that we, you know, we put ourselves completely into this. And, you know, something that would have typically, typically taken us, you know, years to develop, we were done in six months, you know, with that minimally viable product. And from there, we just iterated. And it made such a profound impact that he became my biggest advocate to, you know, to all his peers on why we need to change to this methodology. And from that point forward, we started shifting every, the way we were doing everything because it, it changed, it altered the complete way. And I think you bring up a good point because it allowed us to treat, treat things in baby steps. And, you know, as you said, fear, you know, fell fast and fail often. But through those failures, you learn. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then when you start to grow that a little bit and have other teams, what I'm really seeing is the power of that collaboration. So uh, when uh, I joined the, uh, the public service, I literally left the military on a, on a Friday and started on a Monday kind of thing for me with public service. Oh, wow. And so... No time at all. <laughs> no time at all. Yeah. And, and my my initial role was to kind of come in as a transformational specialist. I mean, part of my work, uh, I guess, um, in iterating and experimenting out on ways to uh, uh, lessen the likelihood of friendly fire by the use of tactical data links uh, in joint and coalition operations was 
you know, my leadership recognized that I need to, I needed to kind of teach what I've learned. And so they sent me away for some graduate training in knowledge management. And that led into another kind of master's degree. And um, by the time I was doing that, I was also chairman of the NATO tactical data link uh, group with 27 nations struggling to, for the same kind of um, end state of, you know, situational awareness. So this doesn't happen again. And that kind of finished up with some more experimentation I did working with NORAD and doing the tactical data infrastructure as the joint interface control officer for the 2010 Olympics, which I learned so much about teams and effectiveness and, and talking about your, your reference to, um, you know, a, a gardening style of leadership. It really came true that if you set the conditions, not in great detail, but more or less in heuristics and giving people a general idea of, uh, of good enough. Like this is a good enough thing. Let's move on to the next thing. That concept of a minimum, right. I call it valuable product instead of yeah. viable product because consumers don't often like that they've been given uh, viable, but valuable is good with them. Yeah, that's um, a good word for it. Yeah, and then when I when I joined, I was in a multi-million dollar large-scale transformation project with the with the public service that was you know, its goals were lofty like many of those waterfall projects is that we're going to transform the everything and we're going to do everything at, at kind of once and uh it it um it imploded in many ways. But, you know, when you look at many organizations that do these things, they're not, they're not a failure or, uh, you know, it doesn't matter which way uh, you look at things. Sometimes the spin is it's successful regardless of, because people don't want to be honest, right? If you're a corporation with stakeholders and stockholders, you don't want um, to admit failure. That's not a good way to, uh, you know, in, in increase your margin. But you find companies that do do that now, smaller, more nimble, nimble uh, boutique uh, companies are actually able to gain quite a little bit about sharing some of their failures with it. So what that came out of is there was two sub-projects within that large project. And the BC government has always been pretty forward-leaning and through some of the work that, you know, your uh, country's done as well in in creating opportunities to excel the public sector into the digital domains, such as 18F. The government of the UK went on a large transformational journey for its, its government as well. And we, there was a lab that was created um, called the um, uh, BC uh, Dev Exchange within the government. And it was to link you know, small uh, industry uh, that were involved with development with uh, the government to come together and learn from each other okay. and actually uh, execute some of uh, what was actually, um, you know, that lab evolved despite the system, right? It was running kind of counter. It was, uh, uh, I guess it was a, a, a black jet propulsion lab or a Lockheed Martin Skunk Works kind of thing. It was, we don't know what it's going to do, but we're going to 
experiment because what we do know is what we're doing right now isn't working so well. And uh, it still exists today and various teams have gone through it. Um, unsolvable problems known before are being tackled by teams across different ministries uh, and, and they're working together. Uh, they're sharing code through GitHub, but it's not just the code they're sharing. They're sharing um, their successes and failures, their procedures. One of the things that we're noticing is that leadership had a hard time really adopting this new way of, of doing things. How do you move from that command and control style micromanagement um, that's noted in the public service because these folks are, are responsible for, for the risk to a more trust-based opportunity for emergence and growth within those teams. And so most of my focus lately has been uh, teaching those, you know, frameworks around what it means to uh, be a digital leader, what it means to, um, you know, encourage and support as opposed to measure and uh, diminish the successes of the team. And it's, I think, about being real, one of the things that I was really curious about is we started off in the natural resource uh, ministry with a few teams within uh, that, that were doing Agile. And we went, I think there's 10 teams now in, in that ministry. And we had just enough of them to get this workplace evaluation survey judging on how happy they were in doing their job. And what we found is that they, their ratings for happiness amongst their team exceeded even the, the, the best other places to work uh, within the public service. And a lot of it was focused on um, their mission. They did their mission every day. They created their own opportunities from being cross-functional to make uh, their processes better. And they felt much more in tune with organizational vision because their organization was five to seven people. And that denominator, uh, uh, I mean, knowing in the military and, and working closely with, with effective groups like special ops and whatnot, there's reasons why groups are small, you know, when you, when you talk about uh, effectiveness. And getting that small group of people focused on a problem, when you start to add more resources to it, all of a sudden it comes to a point where it's diminishing in its capability to actually put out uh, outcome. So, yeah, small teams focused on a problem uh, seem to be a recipe for success. Yeah, well, you, I mean, it's a great topic. And you look at uh, many of the different institutions who, you know, have used it to take them to new heights. You know, one of the most famous is, you know, Jeff Bezos and the way that he leads initiatives. You know, I, I think he always referred to it, the pizza box team, because you should have enough people on your team that the pizza box can, can feed them all. But I, I've always been amazed at how, if he has something critical, he will give it out to three small teams, not tell any of them that they're working on the same project, and then let them come back with, you know, their ideas on how to solve it. And I think that that, uh, you know, many, I think many organizations are now trying to use it, but, but you're right. And something as large as the British Columbian government, 
you know, it's it's the same thing as trying to move an aircraft carrier or a Fortune 500 company. And, you know, I think both of our experience is likely that it's not, it doesn't happen by the masses. It happens by creating these small impetus teams, like you're saying, that go out with a specific task and, and are, are called to solve it. I got first introduced to this um, when I was at uh, Dell, and it's something that Michael Dell would use as we were trying to look at um, skunk work activities of capabilities that we could add into our brand. And so we had our main campus, but we also, there was a site that no one really knew about that we also had where he had, you know, eight, nine, 10 different um, startup companies that he would fund working on new technologies that would benefit Dell sometime in the future. So it's interesting. And I really got a deeper look into this about two years ago. Um, a friend of mine, um, um, Jeff Aggers, one of my classmates from the Naval Academy, uh, works as part of the McChrystal Group. Uh, Jeff is a former uh, Navy SEAL. And, you know, I got to, to go through the McChrystal Group's two-day session. And, you know, in that, uh, General McChrystal and, and Chris uh, Fusel and their team go through the team of teams approach, um, uh, which is great. It's exactly what you're describing. It's how you apply what they've learned in special forces to, you know, corporations to get innovation done more quickly. So yeah, it's, it's incredible. You know, when I look at the difference, I remember my father who was a world war II vet that swept mines off of, uh, the beaches for D-Day, uh, in a wooden minesweeper. Uh, and pulled some of the obstacles off the beach because they were below the trajectory of the main guns. And, and after he retired from the military, he uh, was hired by the military, but by business as well to teach leadership to business. Like from a military perspective, after you know 34 or 37 years of service, go in there and talk about that. And then there was a departure away from that. You know, so folks in MBAs were learning. Uh, what they'd studied in management school and came up with 100 years ago and uh, really hadn't evolved much. And now when I was looking at a couple of colleagues who were doing their MBA, a lot of the content was actually taken from special forces and small group operations and joint operations as kind of this is what leadership looks like in the future. And uh, we probably should have never got away from it because I think leadership is an evolution and there's reasons why there's some general principles that have, um, have endured. I mean, we talk about, you know, the Canadian military or the U S military, which was modeled after the British military, which, uh, you know, probably had its foundations in the Roman military who's had its foundations in the Greek military. These are institutions and lessons learned that are thousands of years old. And from a leadership perspective, the, the way of doing things, I'm not saying that everything could be modeled, but there's some pretty sound principles that were weeded out through um, whether you won a battle or not, whether those practices and procedures were enduring. So I, I think there's some really valid lessons to learn across that, that, uh, that organization and how, it, how it's um, kind of evolved. Yes, exactly. 
Did you know that Forbes magazine recently cited that over 70% of individuals who did personal development courses, masterminds, or one-on-one coaching benefited from improved work performance, relationships, and more effective communication skills? Here at PassionStruck, we are obsessed with self-development, coaching, and mentorship. That is why we've created a free resource to help you unlock your hidden potential. Because people doing great things in business and life are just like you. They have just gotten some coaching along the way. And we have got you covered so you can too. Let us show you the systems and frameworks that we teach growth-minded individuals to help them to unlock their purpose and live and build a passion-struck life that gets predictable results and gives you the freedom that you actually want. Go to passionstruck.com slash coaching right now to get started. Speaking of evolution of organizations, so you now are, are leading much of the digital um, strategy for, for the government. And I saw you're also doing a lot of teaching around digital transformation. What do you see are some of the major hurdles that um, you know, our listeners need, need to be aware of and how they need to look at digital transformation and how it's going to change their lives in the future. Yeah, we'll say I, I'm doing some of that for my ministry, but the government's a big place. So I, uh, even though I try to influence strategy as a whole, I think um, th- there's not a big bang, right? There's not a big bang. Like uh, do what you can to avoid anything except your own experimentations going through it. I think I, I rely quite heavily on some of the work that Dave Snowden has done uh, with Kinevin theory or complexity theory and and kind of talking about remaining kind of true to those initial agile principles, you know, that are based on looking at a problem with uh, complexity, you know, and, and that you have to think differently about it. I think there's been a constant struggle for me to um, keep a kind of that human process engineering or that in engineering underlying waterfall process away from uh, agile teams. They they really don't mix well. Um, no, and, and, oil and uh, water. <laughs> oil and water. And, and some some of the, you know, I think when I started, it was almost a, a constant knife fight between, um, you know, opposing views on how software development should be done. And um, uh, often our processes within Waterfall or big engineering process get in the way of real progress. And leaving the team alone just to develop and not be interrupted by a multitude of meetings and being able to have, um, you know, be cross-functional, be self-organizing, have all the things you need within your team. And if your team doesn't have a skill set, learn from it. You know, they... If it means that they got to learn a new language, then the team slows down. You don't add another five developers on the team well, to make it go faster, kind of. No, you're you're making such a big point here because I remember in the early days when I was working with Ron, when he first um, heard about what we were going to do with Agile, he thought it was going to be more work for him. And I I remember about a month or two into it, you know, we didn't have the big steering committee meet. We didn't have these huge burdens of time that you normally had because, you know, you would sit on this stand up, but that would last 10, 15 minutes. And, you know, he came out of it, the experience saying, I have so much time that wasn't wasted, you know, because we end up 
you know, getting to these stuck points when you're on these larger projects where you spend hours and hours analyzing it, because at this point you're talking hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of potential rework. Whereas, you know, if it's two weeks of work and it's cost me, you know, a couple thousand dollars, he, he, he goes, if it's a failure, you just pivot and you, you don't think of it in the same way. And you're able to make a very quick, you know, strategic decision. Exactly. Exactly. And, and they're, they're, they're decisions. They're not like a decision that's going to take you two years to get that transformative work done. There are various decisions. And I think one of the things that have really appealed to leaders to do at all levels uh, is go to the sprint review, go to the demo, see what they've built in the past two weeks. If you're worried about metrics, look at the client's eyes when they see that thing that has been built. And you know, you get from them, wow, they're really excited about that. You know, I think it's time to be realistic about it as well and start measuring you know, outcomes instead of output, meaning those outputs or those milestone things that you set in the road that were arbitrarily came up with, because chances are you never talk to a developer or a development team, but how long it's going to take to get to that milestone. So they're kind yes. of arbitrary at the beginning, right? But if you start talking about outcomes, like what's putting smiley faces on people visiting your site, that those are the important things you want to focus on. So if you can see the indications of smiley faces through uh, these uh, every two weeks, you're able to see a demo and see maybe it's not a real big smiley face at the beginning. Maybe it's kind of like a, a little bit of a smile. You're on the right path. You know, you're going in the right direction for it. You know, and the other part that's really strong with us and it's taken hold in the BC government, and, and I'm, I'm very encouraged to see it, is a real focus on user research, right? A real focus on bringing the public in and asking them how they feel about things. We've got to be a bit careful about it because like, everybody doesn't know what they want because they don't know what's achievable by technology. But in my recent experience in, you know, we're all used to going on Amazon, particularly in this day and age with COVID and ordering stuff. Um, that we couldn't get from our local um, shop. But sometimes when you go outside of Amazon to another site, it's um, a bit of a lunch bag letdown is that it's not, I'm not getting an indication that it's been shipped. It's not, I, I have no idea what, what the tracking of my package. So it's like, is it going to come? Is it going to be next year that it's going to come? So I think we're spoiled by some really good user research and user design. You know, and uh, there are companies out there that are making a bit of a difference with small teams and making things more intuitive. But how do we make it easier on the public to interact with government is like my daily concern. But I think that same concern is shared with businesses across the board as well. And interestingly enough, even within the military context, even though it was being introduced to NATO when I was deeply involved with it in, in the 2000s, is uh, now NATO has an innovation hub that they have challenges that is open, that is looking for people's best ideas. And I think the future leadership uh, you know, in the space is, is being more collaborative. And not just with other businesses in that kind of competitive uh, co 
co competitive collaboration. It's inviting academia along for the ride. It's inviting, you know, the military along for the ride as well. So right. that you, you, you grow together. And I think good things become of that. And you get good leaders that come out of that too. Well, we have a, a, a local thing here in uh, Tampa where it's, it's become a private and public partnership between the Special Operations Command and public sector vendors trying to service them. And, and what they're trying to do is get around the complicated procurement process that the government faces. And so, you know, the best way for the listeners to understand this is, let's say Special Operations Command wants to create an Iron Man suit. And that Iron Man suit in a totality may be a top secret project. But what they're able to do is they're able to give this out without discussing what the big project is. And they're able to divide it into small chunks of capabilities that they need that they themselves are unclassified. So more, more vendors can participate. And then they have people who are in the classified program who are kind of overseeing kind of the project management office who are divvying these projects out, taking the technology and compiling it so it meets the end goal. And I thought that that was, you know, a brilliant way to, to kind of get around the, the procurement issues, but it's something you could do, you know, in the government, it's something you could do in a large corporation too. Uh, because oftentimes people get so distracted by the, the Iron Man suit aspect that they don't work on the intricacies of what it's going to take and the technology it's going to take to make it come to fruition. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's the innovative approach as well. And I think the, the, the uh, superhero that's been portrayed uh, on Marvel, you see an iteration of the success of those suits as it's gone on, you know, it's not, started off with this um you know end state that is going to answer all of the problems in the future it's uh probably you know putting on a hockey helmet on with a jetpack until you realize that you need a bit of armor <laughs> because landings are rough right and yes. that's a good place to start and uh we did that with the uh, bc dev exchange some very bright people got together and came up with um a thing called sprint with us uh, and I can send you a link on that later that you can uh, make available, but it was a way to quickly go out um, for what you needed, a team to come in and, uh, and support your, uh, your product that you're trying to build. And uh, it would be posted for, uh, I think, 10 days. It would go through a bit of a coding challenge and a team challenge. And within the space of a month, you could have a team starting in agile development with you to support um, your, your government thing. Um, but you're right that that procurement synergy between private and, and public was just a necessary crossroads and too often it's so much of a barrier. It absolutely is. Um, well, I'm going to switch topics on you a little bit here. So I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to interview another guest who's pretty big in the agile world. Uh, her name is Maria Mattarelli and Maria um, coaches people internationally on agile. Um, you know, I'm sure you've heard of Alistair who, who lives here locally um, as well as has been one of her mentors, but she has started, uh, she created a new company called personal, uh, personal agility Institute, where she is applying 
agile methodology to her personal life and the personal life of others. And I, for the listeners, I wanted to, you know, as part of your ministry or things that you were doing, have, have you tried to, to cross that, you know, from business to life standpoint using agile? I think for the people that swallowed the hook, I think it couldn't help but be deeply entangled with their own sense of, of, of their approach to problem solving and decision making. I think that we always struggle with what we want to be when we grow up. Um, even though I'm 54 now, I, I still don't know what tomorrow is necessarily going to bring. <laughs> and I'm okay in that gray area. But a lot of people aren't, right? A lot of people aren't uh, comfortable with the with the gray. I think it's important to, you know, embody a lot of the considerations for um, the process of problem solving that agile is 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 an embodiment uh, an embodiment of if it's being done right. It's the experimentation. It's the tolerance for failure. It's the opportunity for reflection. It's the importance of teamwork, you know, even in your personal life and about the support that you're being given. Right. Uh, the freedom to make decisions and the freedom, you know, to fail, given permission to fail. Like we talk about this in a team setting, but we often don't give ourselves permission to fail, right? That it's okay. We can do better next time and be able to get up kind of with a fresh look and, and I think part of it is just being real and honest that you're not going to get it right. That linear path isn't going to be doing the things. So I think the folks that I've worked with, both in the military, kind of in the academic world, as far as my work now goes in the, in the public service, I think they live it, to be honest with you. I think it goes deeper than a methodology that they, um, that they are working on. They find a significant amount of satisfaction in the perspective. I'm gonna, not going to talk about it like it's a it's a cult or right. you know if it's a completely you know foreign way of thinking. I think it's it's a more realistic way of looking at how you can iteratively develop your own competencies. You know by by going through it like a cycle. It's okay to have those you know, end states that you want to, to get to. But I, I think a little bit of tempering how long it's going to take to get there and what um, the steps are to get there. I mean, obviously in your path, John, you didn't probably have your career trajectory sussed out when you left the Naval Academy that, you know, through the, you know, uh, a bit of the journey that you've taken that it would have passed through all the milestones it has to lead you to this point but you've been you know able to reinvent yourself uh, after each iteration after each go of things and i think that that's agile isn't that isn't that kind of living uh living the lifestyle so to speak yeah i've, I've applied the the same methodology that i learned when i was at arthur anderson going through um their formal method methodology. We were all trained on method one at uh, St. Charles, and I and I took it was a huge thing. So I took it and modified it. And for me, it's you know you've got to analyze and look forward to where you want to be, but you've got to figure out where you are now and how to get there. But the second step um, of prioritization is where you know agile can definitely come in on a daily, weekly, monthly, 
you know, basis to help you staying on track. And then for me, the other stages are, you know, once you do that, you've got to ignite the commitment to it, execute on it, measure it, and then keep renewing it. So it's very much similar to agile in that it's a never stopping process. And with each iteration of it, you've got to get better and fine tune and et cetera. And the faster you can get through it, you know, and, and you're going to make mistakes along the way, the quicker you recognize those, you can measure them and reapply it into your life or career. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think John Boyd, I think his name was, did the work on the OODA loop and, um, uh, you know, you can see many uh, this the kind of correlations between some of the Kinevin theory and uh, his work and agile methodology. And I think at the heart, the thing that really inspires me about uh, John's work is he's able to really promote that you go into decision making, even about yourself, with your own baggage, with your own bias. And um what what's harder to wrap your head around sometimes is you are aware of a lot of those biases and your wife probably tells you about them you know on a daily basis or your children remind you of your biases that you might have but there is some that are unknown to you right and through a process of discovery and enlightenment i think they become apparent to you even if you don't want to own that um you you know they exist so some of it is those unknown unknowns that you'll never know and some of them you know but you just don't want to know because you know they're there but don't want to admit they're there kind of thing so i think seeing yourself in the problem you know i i try to love the problem whatever it is as much as possible because i think there's there's significant unpacking to do with the problem as opposed to speeding toward a solution that you know, might solve it for now, but like, why did the problem exist in the first place? Well, you know, and that, as I've matured, um, is one of the biggest differences I, I think I have now as I've altered my perspective on things is I used to try to go into a prob- problem and I was very good at solving them, but I would go into it, you know, both feet without taking the proper time to really analyze all elements of it and specifically get other people's feedback on it. Because as you walk into a problem, normally a problem exists because something was designed a certain way that created the problem. And unless you understand that backdrop, especially when it comes, I think, to technology systems, you know, a lot of the accidental architecture that you end up experiencing as you're trying to do a digital transformation was put there purposely. It just Mm -hmm kind of got out of control. And unless you understand the fundamental decisions that led to it and can walk back on them, you don't have the, you know, the the full picture of how you're going to solve the problem because you'll end up solving a portion of it, but you might not get to, you know, the absolute thing that's causing it. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's the same thing of, you know, if you've had a traumatic situation in your life until you deal with you know, in Agile, we call them stuck points, you know, in mm-hmm. PTSD trauma, they call it uh, beliefs. If, if you can't get to the bottom of that belief systems that are holding you back, it, it's going to continue to plague you. Same thing with stuck points. Yeah, no, um, I, I think that's, that's entirely relevant. It's about belief and having those teams and people around you to support you and 
you know, uh, sometimes getting up every day and just doing. Yes. Well, I mean, that there is nothing happens without action. Yeah. You know, first you got to make a choice that you're going to change, but without action, nothing occurs. So, you know, craving speed, craving action is absolutely essential. Yeah, I think um, I still have that um, sergeant major in my head from, you know, your basic training. And, uh, you know, he's the person that yells at me to get up in the morning, uh, even though I might want to sleep in. And he's also um, the voice that says, forgive yourself, to learn from it, get on with it. Yes, exactly. Well, I am going to take you now to your favorite part of the interview, which is going to be the rapid round. Um, uh -oh. I think you're one of, one of the first guests I've had who was actually looking forward to it. Most, uh, I think this is the most stressful part of the interview for him. But um, are you ready for it? Let's go. What is the sound that the Northern Lights make? They crackle. Okay. If you could meet anyone alive or dead, who would it be? Socrates. Okay. What is the best compliment you've ever received? Probably something I didn't deserve. If you were an astronaut and you were sent up to colonize a new planet, and as going up there, you could establish one law, what would it be? Hmm. I would have to say, um, don't punish failure. What is your kryptonite? I think fuzzy bunnies. Fuzzy bunnies. Okay. What are three words that describe living in Canada? Or being a Canadian, being a Canadian, uh, that 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 is a really good thing. I think being a Canadian means, in three words, finding who you are. Maybe that was too many, but uh, I don't think it's an end state. I think it's a discovery, a journey. From your time in the military, what is the most important lesson that you've learned that you would want our listeners to know? Trust your crew. Okay. And what is the most important element of leadership um, that you have found? Trust your crew. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, uh, you actually mentioned uh, Dave Snowden earlier, and uh, he is actually going to be a future guest. So I'm, I'm excited to, to have him. And uh, I, I think that's going to be a very interesting uh, inter interview. Um, so thank you for bringing him up. If someone wanted to learn more about your, your ministry and, and what you're doing, where can they learn more about that? I think uh, it uh, BC uh, Dev Exchange, kind of all one word, uh, but we can, I can send you some links, John, that you can post on there. And it, it's an opportunity for other like-minded uh, public institutions. We publish on GitHub. All of our code is normally in the open for source. It's so that some of the work we're doing with the BC wildfires, California could pick up that type of thing to hopefully make it better across the space. Um, that's where I am. I, I, I'm a little bit timid when it comes to digital media, as, uh, as I uh, have, have stated. Um, but uh, please reach out to me uh, on LinkedIn. Be happy to take, uh, take any questions. Um, hopefully, um, some of what we discussed today, John, will motivate other folks and make them stronger leaders than we could ever think of being. Well, I think there was a ton of content here today, and I will put those links in the show notes so um, people will be able to get access to them. And I just really appreciate uh, you know, your service to your country and your long service in the military. Thank you very much for that. 
And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for the opportunity, John. Much appreciated it and I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for watching Sid Tobias on the show today. What a great interview that was. And he unpacks so many things from understanding how you can apply agility, not only in your business, but in your personal life, to really going into why the team of teams coaching works and how that can work for you, again, both in your personal life and how you're dealing with relationships and in your career and how you're dealing with subordinates, peers, and superiors, and why that team of teams approach makes so much sense. He also talks about the impetus for him getting started and why that was such a defining mark. And lastly, he brought up Dave Snowden, who will be on the show in a future episode, and I'm so excited to have him join us as well. Thank you so much again for listening and watching Passion Struck, and I just want to say, keep on igniting. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral by sharing the knowledge and insights you can use to unlock your hidden potential. To hear more, please subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell three of your most driven and motivated friends about the show and post to your social accounts, that would help us grow our Passion Start community too. If you want more tools to unlock your potential, please make sure to also visit our website, passionstruck.com, to sign up to our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. Be sure to tune in on Tuesdays and Fridays for our next episodes. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.